Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Value-Driven Data Science. I'm your host, Dr. Genevieve Hayes. So because this is a, the first episode, I'll just tell you a little bit about myself. So I'm a data scientist and a fully qualified actuary, and I now work with organisations to help them maximise the value of their data and data team through my business, Genevieve Hayes Consulting. This podcast, Value Driven Data Science, is a twice monthly podcast. And in each episode, you'll learn from business leaders and experienced data professionals how to use data science to create business value and grow your in house data capabilities. Today, I'm joined by my very special guest star, Amanda Aitken, to talk about how organizations can go about building the capabilities of their in house data teams to maximize the value of their data. Amanda is a fully qualified actuary who is currently an educator with the Actuaries Institute of Australia. She teaches data analytics and data science to actuaries through the Actuaries Institute's data science applications course, and is also a member of the Institute's data analytics practice committee and its data analytics education faculty. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Genevieve. It's very exciting. Yes, I'm very pleased to have you as my first guest. <laughs> so um, data presents incredible opportunities for organisations to create value. Um, but with the current skills and labour shortages that are affecting all businesses, um, finding and retaining data scientists and other data professionals um, can be incredibly difficult. So um, I think it's really great to have you here today um, to discuss a practical way in which organisations can both address the um, skill shortage and um, gain much needed data science skills. And um, also, I guess, um, increase staff retention. And that, of course, is by upskilling their existing staff. Yep, definitely. Uh, but, but before we get into this topic, um, let's start with your background and how you first got into data science and data analytics. Okay, well, as you said, I'm a qualified actuary, so I guess I'd always liked maths when I was younger. Um, and I remember I loved programming as well. I had a Commodore 64 that I can vividly remember sitting down and spending hours on just doing really basic, like fancy printing programs or something like that. <laughs> um, but I remember loving doing that. Um, and I also remember in my first role as an actuary spending way too much time in Excel Visual Basic trying to automate tasks um, to make things more efficient but also just because it was really fun to be able to do something with the mm. click of the button rather than doing it all manually. Um, so I had that, I guess, interest in programming and learning how to do things efficiently and effectively and how to present things nicely as well. Um, and then I remember in different roles that I worked in as an actuary, and I should say that how did I get into analytics? Well, I think obviously all actuaries are analysts at heart as well. So mm. whether we're using fancy new data science um, techniques or maybe more traditional ways of looking at data, we are data scientists at heart anyway. Um, but I remember in different roles, when I used to work at WorkSafe, we had actuarial consultants who came in and one of them was talking about 
art models that they were using for some piece of analysis. And I remember being quite impressed and thinking, oh, I wonder what that is. That sounds quite fancy. So that's hearing other people talk about techniques that I hadn't heard about before, I guess, whetted my appetite to want to learn a little bit more. Uh, and when I went through my actuarial training, even things like GLMs weren't mm. taught to me, but I remember people talking about them. I worked in general insurance, so I sort of had to learn them on the spot. Um, mm. But I did feel like there were lots of techniques that others were starting to talk about that I wanted to know more about. So that was sort of my history to wanting to learn more. Yeah, I remember um, back when I started in general insurance, um, GLMs were considered state of the art. Mm, yeah. And that was basically the pinnacle of um, statistics or statistical models in general insurance. And I remember learning that there were thing, models beyond GLMs and um, desperately wanting to learn about them because I felt like there was something missing from my education. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And at the same time, it's interesting because I have heard lots of experienced data scientists saying to me, sometimes we get a bit carried away with, you know, the newest thing to play with when maybe simple linear aggression or um, GLM might be just as good. So we can also get carried away with fancy stuff when maybe some of the simple techniques work quite well. Yeah, I, mean, I, was, I was speaking to um, a fellow data nerd the other day and um, he was asking me how to basically do, it was a prediction of um, school grades on a test based on previous semester's school grades. And just looking at the data he had, you know, he only had um, about, I don't know, 25 students in the class. The, the best solution was a standard linear regression model. Yeah. Yeah. I also remember my husband is in um, this works in the sporting industry and he had a friend working at an AFL club and he this friend said I wonder if your wife would be able to help me with something they'd collected stats on a whole lot of players that were um, being considered for the AFL draft yeah and so they had yeah just, I can't remember all the different things like their speed on the field their height their weight their I don't know, marking or kicking accuracy, just a whole lot of different metrics. And he said, oh, I don't know how to combine them all to come up with like an overall score. And I, I just sat down with him and said, well, how important are each of these different attributes? And then I just had a like a weighted linear model that I built for him, which took, you know, two minutes. And he was just blown away and said, oh, this is so useful. So I think experiences like that also showed me that there can be really simple things you can do with data that provide a whole lot of value for some businesses yeah I, I was um reading an article the other day on the internet and um the author of the article was saying you know the first rule of data science or machine learning is don't use machine learning unless you have to yeah 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 so um i've got to ask this question because i know there'll be people out there who are wondering this um what's the difference between a data scientist and an actuary Oh, it's a good question. I've seen so many Venn diagrams that compare <laughs> statisticians and actuaries and data scientists. And I think for most of those diagrams that I've seen, um, this is probably a negative way to look at it as an actuary, but the thing that might be missing from the actuarial skill set that data scientists tend to have is very strong programming ability. So mm. I, I feel like most actuaries like me had a background in wanting to program and knowing how to 
um, sort of write code efficiently. But then along the way, we sort of lost that skill because we didn't use it because we're so um, wedded to using Excel for everything. Mm. So I guess that's one of the differences. But then on the positive side, um, all the Venn diagrams that I've ever, ever seen have actuaries promoting themselves as being having very deep um, contextual knowledge, particularly in the area of finance mm. and being able to see the big picture and, you know, working within the control cycle, which involves, you know, working out what's the problem, um, designing a solution to solve that problem and then monitoring the impact of that solution. Mm. And so that's something that actuaries would say, well, that's in our skill set that maybe data scientists don't have so much, but, you know, I think both sides would then argue back on both of those points and say, well, that's all, you know, everyone can have those skills these days as well. So it's really hard, I think, to differentiate between the two. You could always think of an actuary as being a domain-specific data scientist that hmm. whose domain is in one of those financial services industries like um, insurance or superannuation, for example. I remember as well going to a data science meetup group in Melbourne years mm. ago and talking to the guy that was organising it and saying, oh, I hope, I think he'd asked me to present as an actuary at a session. I said, oh, I hope that I'll be of interest to all those data scientists listening. I, I don't know if my data science skills are so good. And he said, what are you talking about? Like, aren't actuaries the original data scientists? And I, it was quite heartening to hear that from someone who calls himself a data scientist and heads up a data science meetup group so yeah I think uh, I think I sort of see um two different groups of data scientists there are ones that are more focused on the hardcore programming side of things um and then there are ones that are more focused on the statistical side of things and I think right. actuaries are better aligned with the statistical end of data science and you know interpreting data finding patterns in it and identifying tr trends and insights um whereas um I don't think actuaries are so good at the whole um, more software development side of um, data science. And that's probably where people from, say, a software engineering background are better placed. Yeah, and I think also traditionally, um, well, I guess in the last few decades, data scientists have become very comfortable using all the tools that you talk about in data science, um, different modelling techniques that actuaries have taken a little bit longer to um, want to or taken longer to learn and put into their toolkit but that's changing as well mm. so at the actuaries institute we have data science subjects now we're trying to equip you know any qualified actuary with those basic um, skill sets that they can then take into their role so again I guess over time that reduces the difference between a data scientist and an actuary. So so that's a good segue so um as I said in the intro, you're, you teach the course um, Data Science Applications, which was previously known as Data Analytics Applications. Um, I'm not going to go too much into the difference between a data analyst and a data scientist because I yeah. think there are a lot of people in the community um, who haven't quite determined the differences between those two. Yep. Um, but um, so... The aim of this um, course that you teach is to equip people with um, uh, data science skills. Um, what, um, could you tell the um, listeners a little bit about uh, what you teach in this course? Yeah, sure. So we've got two subjects that we've introduced into the actuarial program. 
there's a subject called data science principles that all actuaries now study um, as part of their university qualification. And that teaches them the data science process, starting with just knowing the context that you're working within, understanding that the data, the data you might have to work with and the problem that you're trying to solve, setting up a model to try to create a solution, um, looking at the output of that model and evaluating it, and very importantly, being able to communicate the results of your modelling to audiences, including people who are not technical, who don't want to know exactly how you came up with the answer. They just want to know what is the answer and how can they interpret it and how can it help them in the business. So that's the data science principles subject that all students will learn at university. And then the subject that I teach um, is an optional subject for actuaries who want to specialise in the data science area. So it's data science applications. And in that subject, we teach a variety of um, theoretical topics, or I guess starting with the theory on things like neural networks, um, unsupervised learning, optimization. But although we start with the theory, we then move pretty quickly on to okay, how do we actually apply that theory in practice? So it's a very hands-on subject. It's all taught in Python. So um, even students who are taking the subject that haven't learnt Python before come out the end being able to build some pretty cool models in Python that they can readily adopt in the workplace to solve real problems. Um, but we not only teach the sort of techniques that actuaries can use, but also the considerations they need to make when they're using those techniques. So first of all, actuaries have a lot of domain knowledge traditionally in the area of finance, but more and more we're branching into new areas like energy or government, um, retail analytics, you know, anywhere that has a whole lot of data, I think actuaries can add value. So we teach things like um, the importance of understanding the area that you're working in and how do you go about gaining knowledge in a brand new area that you might be given an exciting problem to work on, but maybe you've never worked in television before so you need to sort of upskill in that area um, so help actuaries understand how to do that in a new area they're working in but also some of the big questions around um, when you're building a model who's going to use it and how might it impact the users so could it potentially cause harm to anyone and if so who might it cause harm to and how do you prevent that harm from occurring so really trying to think about the context in which you're working to add value to your models and also make sure that you're using data for good, which is something that we're really focusing on at the Actuaries Institute. So mm -hmm. we're not just trying to drive profit for organisations, we're trying to make sure that society actually values or um, gets value from the stuff that we do as actuaries. Yes. So, yeah, lots of components in the subject like that, as well as sort of some more technical skills. And um, I guess the data for good thing sort of reminds me of the old um, Google um, do no evil um, yep. uh, guideline. Yep. I think discussing that is a topic for another day, okay, though. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so basically you are in the business of upskilling actuaries uh, with data science skills. Absolutely, yep. So, of course, we still teach actuaries the traditional areas of how do you do a life or general insurance valuation or pricing exercise. Um, but even those sorts of exercises now can benefit from some of the data science tools that we haven't always used as actuaries. 
could non-actuaries benefit from the sorts of things that you're teaching with at the Institute? Yeah, I definitely in the past we have focused on providing services to members who are um, actuaries or people who want to become actuaries. But more and more, particularly when you're asking questions like what's the crossover between data scientists and actuaries, we think we've got a great reputation um, as an actuarial body for providing our actuaries with um, professionalism skills and making sure that, um, as we talked about before, actuaries are working towards the common good and yeah. working with professionalism and ethics and following laws. So we've got sort of that, um, you know, good reputation on that side. And I think that that framework together with some of the technical skills that we teach actuaries could be of benefit to people outside the actuarial profession. So we are starting to look at how can we use the um, materials that we have put together to teach actuaries to also help non-actuaries who are interested in this area. So it's sort of a watch this space at the moment. Um, we're traditionally subjects have only been available to people who are members of the Institute. We're definitely looking at how we can make those materials to a broader community as well. Yeah, and you mentioned a few of those industries before, so things like energy, um, what was it? Government, I think I said, retail. Yeah, the list is endless, really. If you think about any industry that collects a whole lot of data and wants to extract some business information from that data, then that's an area that actuaries can play in. It, it fascinates me some of the industries that I've seen looking for data scientists. Um, I've, I've seen um, there's some major tourist attractions in Melbourne that have advertised for data scientists to work with their yeah, data. Yeah. And, um, and um, schools are starting to go down that path now. Um, uh, they'd have a lot of data that have all the test results that the students have. Um, it's people with data are finding ways to use it. Exactly. And I, I talked about my experience with the AFL in the past as well, and definitely sporting organisations are hot to trot in trying to use their data to maximise performance of their teams and yeah. well in competitions. And I, actually I started a consulting firm um, some years ago now and my partner and I were really gung-ho on getting into the area of sports analytics. I guess because mm. of my husband's background, I was had a personal interest in it. Um, but it was interesting in the area of AFL because a number of people we spoke to basically said to us, well, why would we pay you for those services when hundreds of people are willing to do stuff for free for the AFL? So in Australia, we're so focused on our AFL that people are willing to give their time at no cost. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. You'd have to go for a sport that no one has any interest in. I think so, yeah, which would be less interesting probably to work with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and they probably have less data because no one's actually attending and, yeah. Not and, paying big money to collect that data, that's right. Yeah, yeah and, and I can't actually think of any um, sports. If I named a sport and said this sport is phenomenally boring, I will have listeners <laughs> calling in and saying. Yeah, don't say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm not going to pick any random sports and pick on them or anything yeah, like that. <laughs> Although I did speak of that. I, someone sent me a link um, the other day about a new sport that they've seen, which is Excel modelling. I can't remember what it's called, but there's a World Championships 
that's just been played and you can watch on YouTube these people doing modelling in Excel under time pressure. <laughs> so it was quite mind-blowing. <laughs> it's, um, it's, I could imagine having, I don't know, televised Kaggle competitions. Which, yeah, it was like know, that, yeah. Sounds phenomenally boring. But, I mean, if you could sort of come up with some sort of esports type scenario for it it might be yeah. interesting it was exactly how it was set up and the commentators did a really good job of making it sound interesting but yeah. I remember at one point the commentator said oh look he's put a comment in his cell there I wonder what he's written but <laughs> oh that's really trying desperately to make something sound interesting but so that was it was quite interesting to watch you could see them sort of flicking back and forth between tabs and madly trying to solve the problem with two minutes to go and I found myself wishing that I was there trying to solve the problem. Well this is going completely off topic now but it's a little bit like when I see my kids watching someone else playing a video game and I think Mm. how do we get to that as being a spectator sport but yeah. I find um, this is again going completely off topic um watching videos of people speed completing old um nintendo nes games so like super mario brothers yeah and and, you know they can complete it in a few seconds you know maybe less than 10 minutes the whole game Mm. it's fascinating it is and (laughs) and that is something that i'm sure data science would help with doing analyses of this in order to get those last few seconds off and um get the speed record for Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, because I guess part of the algorithm of um, doing a data science problem is knowing the problem that you're trying to solve and working out the most efficient and effective way to get to an answer to that problem. So you're right, that, that's yeah. probably quite a good, yeah, neat skill set for solving some of those problems like getting from A to B on Mario Brothers. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a business optimization problem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so um, what we've come up with here is a benefit that data science could bring to an organisation. I mean, yep. whether you're ma- optimising Super Mario Brothers or you're yeah. optimising the um, route that a petrol tanker takes in delivering petrol from uh, the oil refinery to petrol stations. Yeah. Um, business optimization is a benefit of data science. Yeah, and I've read some really fascinating business optimization case studies like one of the delivery companies. They've got obviously drivers all or deliverers all over the place in different locations. They've yeah. got um, people living in different locations ordering, say, their food if it's food delivery. They've got the restaurants that are providing the food and they've got to work out, okay, when customer A wants food from restaurant B and you have a hundred different drivers you could pick from and you've got to pick something in a second so that the drivers aren't sitting around waiting for a long time. Mm. How do you optimise that whole process? And to me, that's a fascinating problem to have to solve because there's so many moving parts that you have to allow for. Mm. Well, a number of years back, I spoke to uh, one of the data analytics managers at the Country Fire Authority and um, they were talking about how they'd um, one of their projects was working out uh, what is the optimal route for a fire truck to take from wherever the fire truck is currently located to the fire? So right. um, because, you know, just one or two minutes can be the difference between mm-hmm. saving a house and having it burn to the ground. Yep. And I imagine 
the, the complexity for them would also be working out safe ways to go, not just like the fastest way, but making sure that the truck's not going to get um, cut off by a fallen tree or something or, you know, mm. the fire front going across its path or something. So, yeah. And um, and that's another thing they also do. They look at modelling of the path of the bushfire mm. so that they can work out where it's going to go. So they're not just looking at um, where the bushfire is now, but they're also looking at uh, where will that bushfire be in 30 minutes time or 60 minutes time or yeah. um, however long. And so therefore they're predicting the future so that they can act based on, based on that. Yeah. Yeah. And there we go, another benefit of data science. If you can predict the future, then you can um, take a proactive approach to things rather yep. than a reactive approach. Mm. And I like that example of the CFA too because you're really trying to save houses and save lives. So that is an excellent example of using data for good. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that's, that's the thing. Um, uh, anytime you're doing a data science project, I think one of the first things you should look at is uh, what are the business objectives of performing this? And I mean, obviously, most commercial businesses, the first things they're going to say are, how can we increase revenues or how can we decrease expenses? But there are so many other objectives that businesses have, um, be mm -hmm. they for profit or um, not for profit. And they can be something as simple as um, how do I make my staff happier? Um, how do I um, reduce the number of, reduce the amount of harm that's being done by this organisation or by um, something in the community? Like, you know, something like the Transport Accident um, Commission, mm -hmm. their goal is to get down to um, zero lives lost on the ro roads each year. Yeah. But, I mean... You could have um, one of the uh, mining companies trying to reduce their um, greenhouse gas emissions, and that's yep. harm reduction. And um, these are all things that you can try and optimise when you're launching a data science project. And I think that's one thing that sets data science above and beyond the more traditional data capabilities that an organisation might have. Yeah. So, yeah. And especially when an organisation has sometimes competing objectives, which I think is all the time. So an organisation that's profit-making wants to, mm. I guess, maximise their profit, but subject to meeting a whole lot of other targets that they might have, like mm. you know, doing the least harm to the environment or, you know, whatever it is. So, uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, if you really think about it, if a company wants to maximize its profits they can basically treat their employees like slaves um, abuse the environment um, uh, get the cheapest and nastiest um, raw materials but uh, that's clearly not going to work in the long term and yeah I was going to say I feel like that you know might help to maximize short-term profits but it's always yeah. going to be a trade-off to long-term sustainability yeah put up with that for yeah yeah. And you see from all the cases where big companies have been fined for have, take, for um, doing things like that, that mm. uh, clearly it is um, not something that the world is willing to put up with in the long term. Yeah. Well, I think it was only last week in the news there was the article about the fine on Google for 
having used, I can't even remember the details of it now, but um, basically using information about customers that they didn't realise were being used. Yeah, and I think um, that's another benefit of upskilling people. Um, one of the things that data scientists should be taught, and I'm sure they are taught in your course, is just having an awareness of privacy and ethical considerations. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, tell me about um, how do you teach a actuary about data science, privacy and ethical considerations? Uh, that's one of the modules in the data science applications subject, and it's it's not really a standalone module. It covers everything that actuaries do and mm. everything they learn within the subject. But we start by teaching the theory, I guess, or the principles behind ethical thinking and privacy. So why mm. do we care about people's privacy? Um, why do why is it important to act ethically? And what are some of the um, frameworks for thinking in an ethical way. So, you know, what are the different ethical perspectives that people might have? What are the different um, ethical principles that you should abide by as an organisation or even as an individual? So sort of start with a theory. And then I think the best way to learn that stuff is through case studies and talking mm. about, you know, this particular situation, this is what happened, this is when, what went wrong. Why do you think it went wrong? Like, you know, whose fault was it, what could have been done differently and how might you act differently as an actuary if you were in that situation? Because I, I find with all of the discussions about ethical um, behaviour and respecting privacy and making sure you're securing data and all those sorts of issues, it's fine to talk about it at a theoretical level, but unless you're talking about the practical implementation of those theories, it's sort of in one ear and out the other. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I've just finished reading um, Toby Walsh's book, um, Machines Behaving Badly. Um, oh, have, you, yes. have you read it? I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Yeah. It's it's an excellent book. And um, so Toby Walsh is an academic at the University of New South Wales, I believe. And um, in it, he's basically... Um, he gives a lot of examples of what can go wrong if we don't um, use data science and artificial intelligence and data analytics in a um, responsible way. Hmm. And um, one of the things he points out is that there are um, the same technology can be ethical in some situations, but unethical to use in other situations. Okay, that's interesting, yeah. So, for example, um, facial recognition tech technology. Um, is that ethical to use um, to identify a kidnapped child? Mm -hmm. And I'd say most people don't have any issues with that um, because the um, benefit outweighs the cost there. Yeah. But that same technology uh, would be used to make autonomous drones um, for military purposes. So identifying um, targets and then potentially killing them. And is that an ethical use of mm. facial recognition technology? And I was recently looking at an article which was summarising the EU's new AI legislation that doesn't come in, my understanding, for a couple of years. Mm. But in that they talk about the risks of different AI applications and based on the level of risk, you can do different 
things, but definitely within um, that summary that I read, at least there was a discussion about, or I think the legislation sets out, yeah, you can use facial recognition if it's going to help you prevent a crime which is um, has serious implications. I can't remember the terminology they use, mm. but you can't use it to um, prevent some more minor crimes. So like they've, they've obviously had a go in the EU at articulating when things are okay and when they're not okay. And that, that must be really hard to do, to try to think of all different situations that these technologies might be used for and make sure that they're used appropriately, but not, yeah, not when the costs outweigh the benefits. Yeah, and then you have um, situations like with the um, Clearview AI scandal. Um, so are you familiar with that? No. So Clearview AI, they were scraping um, uh, people's images from social media websites. Right. So they had this massive database of photos of people and they were selling a product um, that could identify people by matching them to their social media profile pictures, so using facial recognition technology. And um, some law enforcement organisations were trialling that software and even if they were using that for the benefit of the population, um, the fact, the outcry from the public of that scandal suggests that um, even if it was stopping a crime, people weren't comfortable with the idea of um, the law enforcement agencies using technology that was violating the privacy of social media account holders. Mm. Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah, one of the things that I always think in the area of ethics is that it's, obviously we've moved beyond just making sure we're acting legally. We're also now trying, most organisations, trying to make sure that um, they're acting in a way that the broader society would accept as reasonable, um, which is a really hard benchmark to meet because I think that benchmark changes all the time. Like I, I think about when I first noticed that... Uh, say Facebook was tailoring their ads to something that I'd searched for and the very first time I discovered that I was horrified I was like oh that's amazing I was just looking into that um, you know mm. customs support organization and here's an ad for them and it, it twigged that oh no Facebook is just able to use that data that I've searched on to optimize their ads so yeah initially I was horrified by that years ago and now I just accept that that happens everywhere so I definitely think this thing about meeting um, customer expectations or the public's expectations is a really challenging problem to face because I think those expectations change all the time. And, and I think a lot of artificial intelligence and machine learning is taking the place of um, humans. So machines are now doing roles that humans did in the past, but people expect different things of machines than what mm. they expect of um, humans. Yes, and there's a great book that talks about that, and I cannot think of the name of it, but I, I will look it up so that we can put it into the show notes. That would be good, yeah, because yeah. uh, that's the thing. Um, well, humans are accountable for things. Uh, if a human stuffs something up, that human will end up before the court, but you can't uh, put a machine before the court. Yeah, and that gets really interesting when you're looking at things like driverless cars and having to um, codify decisions about, well, if you have to choose between 
a young, healthy person and an old, sick person, which person should the car crash into if it has to veer to save the driver's life, for example? And humans have to make those decisions when they're driving cars and you accept that in the spur of the moment you might make the wrong decision, but you try Mm. best. But when it comes to actually codifying that and saying, okay, this person's life is more valuable than this other person's life and so we're going to build that into the machine, that that gets really tricky, doesn't it? Yeah. So I think in um, we might have just gone off on a bit of a tangent here, but... I think um, in the process, we've managed to cover off a lot of um, benefits that data science can bring to businesses. Yeah, another benefit that I was thinking of that probably gets missed a lot of the time is just an ability to keep your staff engaged and motivated. Mm. So I know as a staff member myself in previous organisations, there were things that I wanted to learn. And I think any employer that was willing to invest time in me actually learning those skills and having the opportunity to implement them at work, that employer was much more likely to retain me in the long term, as opposed to ones that just wanted to do things the way we'd always done them. So as someone who likes to experiment with new ways of working with data, um, being given the opportunity to do that keeps me engaged and motivated. So I think retention of staff and retention of good quality staff is also a very strong reason right now to um, be offering your staff the ability to learn data science skills and put them in place in the organisation. And it actually makes me think of you in a previous role. I know you talked about a particular role you had where you were given almost free range to, to start experimenting with different things and seeing what might help the business and I remember you being particularly motivated by that. Yeah and I mean I know in previous roles I've managed teams and uh, one of the things that um, we're always encouraged to talk to our team members about was to get some understanding of um, where they saw themselves in the organisation and whether they were intending to stay on with the organisation with the idea being if they weren't then we could try and do stuff to retain them as best we could and one of the themes that always came out in those conversations was um, people were happy to stay as long as they were still learning new things in that job Um, the point um, from speaking to people when they did decide to move on um, the number one reason I tended to get from staff was um, they'd learned everything that they were going to learn in that job and all they could see was that they were just going to end up doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, and yeah. and so that was what inspired them to take on whatever the new opportunity was. Hmm. Well, definitely. I mean, there's there's always going to be a percentage of the working force that is happy to sort of do the same things over and over, and they feel very comfortable and that mm. they're happy with that. That's great. But I would say a large percentage of the workforce likes to have a little bit of a challenge and feel like they're growing a bit in the things yeah. that they're doing. And those are probably the people that the employers want to retain the most. Yeah. Yeah. So you've convinced me that upskilling staff with data science skills is a great idea. Um, suppose an employer listening to this is thinking exactly the same things. What do, would the upskilling process look like? Um, I think there are so many different options available. Like I was thinking back to how I 
taught myself data science skills and there's such a range of um, options that I took up. So initially I just started with some self-paced free online courses, either in a particular topic that I liked the sound of or that had been recommended to me by friends and it felt a little bit scattergun but I, I guess it was just my first step into learning about this new area so it was good that I had taken that first step um, but then there's more structured learning that's available so there are online courses you can take like the um, one of the ones I took early on was the Stanford machine learning course which mm -hmm. used to be taught in a somewhat outdated programming language and is now taught in Python so I think that's a um, great move for that course. But, yeah, there's so many online courses that are available, either free or for, you know, usually pretty reasonable costs. Um, there are other structured learning paths like the data science micro-credential that the Actuaries Institute offers. Um, and there are also obviously masters in data science, which, to be honest, I've considered for myself. And I know I've spoken to you about it, Genevieve, given that you've yeah. studied one. Um, and it's it's tempting for me, but at the same time, there's a lot more of a time commitment required and, and obviously cost associated with that. So I'm still trying to work through whether that's of value to me. But so for a particular organisation, I guess it depends a lot on the budget that's available and the amount of time that they're willing to let staff spend on training. But I would say that there is there are options available no matter what the budget and time availability have for your staff. What, what, what do you reckon would be the first skill you would teach a um, staff member who was interested in learning data science skills? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think it depends a lot on the staff member. Like they might be wanting to learn how to automate tasks and so maybe it's learning a new programming language that will help them do that is, is the way to go. Or they might be wanting to build models that are better predictors of the future than the more simplified models that they've started with. So maybe they start learning about neural networks or um, yeah, other types of data science techniques that they may not have experimented with before. So I think it depends what they're doing at work. And I imagine that some staff would already know exactly what it is that they want to do. So maybe there's some project they're working on and they recognise that they've got this skill gap. And so they, they know exactly what they want to learn, which is obviously mm. a bit easier. Other staff members, probably more like me years ago, just knew that there was more out there but didn't really know where to start. Mm. And I don't know if it matters where you start. I think whenever someone says to me, where should I start? My recommendation is usually just start somewhere. It doesn't yeah. actually matter because I think that's the hardest thing. There's so many terms that are thrown around in the area of data science that it's quite overwhelming and you feel like I'm never going to learn all of that stuff. And, and you never are. Like I'm, I'm never going to learn everything there is to learn about data science. Far from it. But I think just make a start. Um, so, yeah, I don't have specific advice that applies more generally, but it probably depends what it is that the person's interested in learning and whether they already have an idea of what they want to learn or if they just want to take some sort of general course that covers all the general principles 
like the Actuaries Institute's micro-credential. I'm doing shameless plugs for that at the moment. <laughs> uh, and that will be put in the show notes, listeners. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, but, but, yeah, I, mean, I think um, I understand why the Institute's micro-credential has to be quite broad because you're not customising that to an individual employer. Yep. And if you were customising it to an individual employer, um, then you could target those specific skills and um, Genevieve Hayes Consulting can customise those <laughs> to your um, individual needs, businesses. Absolutely. So that's and my customising to not just skills but also to the context because I think yeah. if, yeah, you were going in um, as Genevieve Hayes Consulting and customising, yeah. then all the case studies that you bring out, all the um, applications of techniques, you can mm. show them with their data and with their particular industry focused on, whereas you're yeah. right. I mean, like the micro-credential that the Actuaries Institute offers, it's designed for really anyone in any industry. Yeah. So there's a broad range of skills taught and we sort of think about how to apply it in a whole lot of different industries. Mm. And I think there's you know, a place for both of those. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, I think one of the mistakes that a lot of employers make is they either hire data scientists or they, well, could upskill people into data science, but they don't have a problem in mind that they want to solve with data science. Yep. And so, I mean, um, it's what I think of as the go-do data science problem where um, an employer takes on their staff and then the staff member shows up and on day one um, they say to the staff member, go do data science. And the person <laughs> yeah. doesn't know what to do. Yeah. And so I think um, one of the things that employers should think about is um, what are the problems they're trying to solve using data science and then upskill their employees um, with the specific data science skills that are um, needed to solve that individual problem. I think so. And I think the other way to prevent someone from going off and solving something that's too big or unlikely to be successful or not relevant to the business is a couple of things. One would be to use data science skills to make a current task more efficient. Mm. So automation. Exactly. Automation or um, maybe all of your modeling is done in Excel at the moment. So maybe mm. the first task is just transition that to Python. And I've I talk about Python, there are lots of other packages, a lot of people love mm. R or um, other programming options, but yeah, I, I quite love Python. Um, yep, either way, Python so, here. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're upskilling your team members in an environment where they know the expected outcome so they can see mm. what's coming out of the Excel model. They've basically got to replicate that in the Python model. Mm. And in the process, I think you're making the whole... Um, data science calculation more robust because I, I I love Excel as well and I've used Excel all my life as an actuary but I can see that there are a number of problems with it particularly if you're using it with very big data sets um, mm. I've, there's been so many times when I've done a pivot table on a really big data set and it just doesn't work like it, yeah. it doesn't actually bring out the right results from the query um, but also Excel is so free form that it can be really hard to track the logic in the mm. spreadsheet so there's calculations going back and forth and up and down and across tabs mm. all over the place 
Whereas in a programming language, it starts from the top, it goes to the bottom and it reads left to right. Um, and there's usually quite nice um, tools that you can use to document what's happening at different stages. So I think it's a more foolproof way of doing a lot of the stuff that we used to do in Excel. So mm. sorry, I went a bit off track there, but so the first option would be take a task you're currently doing and see if you can make it more efficient or a bit more robust by maybe transitioning it into a programming language away from Excel. Um, but other than that, if you're starting on something new, my advice would be to start small. So don't get your new data scientist to solve some big problem that you've been grappling over with for years and years that's highly complicated. Yeah. Just start with some nice small task that can give them a really quick win that will help them learn more about your business, um, but also gain some credibility with key stakeholders. So if they can demonstrate some small wins, they'll start to build up their reputation and the trust that key stakeholders will have in what they're able to do, which then gives them, I think, the freedom to start exploring and working on some of those bigger problems. And I think uh, one thing I witnessed in another organisation I was working at, um, along those same lines is don't try and solve the problem for the whole organisation. Just mm. focus on one particular business unit within that organisation. Definitely. That's a good example of starting small because that's a lot less complex than when a problem covers lots of different business units and then you've got lots of different interactions going mm. on that can be much harder to come up with a solution for. Yeah, and in that organisation, I was working in a data science team that sat within one particular business unit and we were actually achieving results very quickly, whereas mm. there was another data science unit that was in the whole um, corporate IT type area. And because they had to cover the whole organisation, um, they were taking a lot longer to get any results out. And we ended up looking really good as a result. Yeah. And I think also um, the advice would be that when you have you want to be encouraging people to experiment and be creative and just have a go and if there's a real fear of failure then those things don't happen so mm. if you're working on a nice small project initially if it fails you probably haven't invested a whole lot of time in it you can probably say okay this hasn't worked let's move on to the next thing yeah. because if you start off on something really big where there's a really um I guess, bad outcome from it failing, mm. then you're almost setting the person up to fail from the start. So, yeah, any way that you can encourage people to experiment without fearing that failure is going to give you more success in the long run. I think well, um, I've been working on a guide over the last couple of days. Um, it's a guide for employers and businesses on how they can identify data science problems and not just identify them, but um, assess their feasibility before they assign them to their staff. And one of the things that I was putting, um, discussing in that around the feasibility was um, in order to determine how feasible something is, um, think about how easy it would be to um, get a human to do it. You know, could you give this, could you get, how hard would it be for a human to perform this task at a small scale. Right. And, and it sort of comes back to a rule of thumb that I learned uh, when I was learning machine learning and AI, which was um, 
if you can teach a child how to do this task, then you can probably um, create an artificial intelligence that can perform it very accurately. Yeah, okay. So, like, for example, it, it's very easy to teach a child how to identify a picture of a cat. Mm. But um, if it's something that requires really complex knowledge and a PhD in some specialist area, um, like um, predicting the stock market or predicting the path of bushfires, um, now, I know models like that exist, mm -hmm. but uh, um, I could not build one of those in an afternoon. Yeah. Um, and I know I do not have the specialist knowledge to ever build a model that predicts the path of bushfire. Um, <laughs> and so that's not the sort of model you would want to assign to your data scientists as their first task, no. because as you said, um, you're setting up the poor data scientist for failure. Mm, that's right. And setting yeah. up the organisation to fail and experimenting with data science. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll put a link to that um, guide because it'll be finished by the time this is out um, in the show notes in case anyone's interested in it. That sounds great. So we've got, um, we've described the benefits of data science and we've decide, described how an organisation could go about upskilling people. Is there anything that the management should think about uh, and learn about data science um, so that they can get the most out of their newly upskilled staff? Yeah, I think that the best way that they can get the most out of their staff is and the best way they can take knowledge from a data science project and use it to improve outcomes in the business is to keep those lines of communication with their staff open. Mm -hmm. So obviously don't, you know, as a senior manager, you don't want to know all the nitty gritty of what's gone on in the project, but you want to understand enough that you could explain it at a high level to someone else in the organisation. Um, and the best way to do that is to talk to the people that have been involved. So that will give you more of an understanding of what's gone on and what's been done to achieve the outcomes and what you can do with those outcomes. But I also think it's an excellent opportunity for your staff to be able to communicate with a broad range of different people. Because I, I we learned this so much uh, as actuaries that it's one thing to be able to sit in the back room and do calculations. And I think mm. actuaries, we had a probably unfair reputation as being the back room boffins in the past mm. where we do these calculations in our back room and then spit out an answer and sort of pass it over to someone on a piece of paper, but we didn't know how to communicate it. That, that was the reputation, which I think is a bit unfair. Mm. Um, but I think the value from anything data science related really comes from someone being able to take the outcomes of your model and explain what they mean to usually a non-technical audience so that that other audience can actually do something with that information. It's absolutely useless to have output of a model that no one understands and therefore doesn't know how to act on. Um, so, yeah, it's a two-way thing. You, you learn from your staff and they learn how to communicate with other people that don't have that same detailed knowledge that they have. And I think the communication point's a very good one because uh, when I started off working as an actuary uh, in the insurance industry, one of the things I observed was um, in the insurance industry, senior management understand the importance of communicating with actuaries and listening to actuaries. And um, it wasn't uncommon for me to be um, presenting to the CEO. Um, I remember 
being in my late 20s and being brought into meetings with the CEO where I would have to explain um, premium pricing calculations because I was the most senior person in the organisation who could actually understand the maths. Right. And uh, or the mo- yeah, and that was, and I was not senior in that organisation. <laughs> there were a lot of people above me. Uh, but I think... A lot of senior management aren't used to communicating with the data scientists yet because it's an unknown quantity. So I think the data scientists need to learn to communicate with the senior management. But I think for the senior management to get the most out of their upskilled um, data science staff, um, they need to respect the skills the data science staff um, bring and be open to listening to that. I think so. And there are a whole lot of other benefits that I think flow from that as well. So we talked before about implementing data science in an ethical way. Mm. I think it's maybe it's sometimes hard for the person who's been buried deep in the actual work and calculation to see the bigger picture. So Mm. having to communicate that bigger picture obviously helps with that. Um, But maybe it's not until you have those discussions with different people about what you've done and what the outcomes are and how it might be used that you can start to question, um, you know, is it going to work the way we want it to? Is it going to be used the way that we think it should be used? What ways might it be misused and therefore cause harm to others? So being able to think about whether what you're doing is ethical and therefore what you want to be doing comes about by having those conversations with people with a whole lot of different backgrounds, the people that can see the big level mm. picture, the people that can see the detail. Um, so, yeah, that, that's another benefit, I think, of having that communication. And I know with um, your data analytics applications course that communication is something that you emphasise. Yeah, and, and throughout the actuarial training, it's we recognise that being able to communicate the results of our modelling is a really critical I was going to say is really important it's beyond that it's it's really critical otherwise people are going to misunderstand it and misuse it and Mm. not get the benefit from it that they might otherwise yeah and I think with all the automation of um, a lot of data science tasks like with um, auto ml I think communication is going to become the big skill for data scientists five ten years down the track yeah yep I, I think so as well which um, is a segue into one of my final questions for you. Um, is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next, say, three to five years? Uh, yes, and we've already talked about it a lot, and I think it's already really important, but it's just about making sure that we're using data science responsibly and ethically. So there's more and more discussion about not just is what I'm doing legal, but is it ethical? Does it fit with my company's values? Is it what my customers expect from me? Mm-hmm. And I guess it's really about making sure that we're using data science and data for good and preventing harm um, yeah. from anything that we're doing. So, you know, asking questions like, is this outcome fair and and for who? Is it fair for my customers? Is it fair for different groups of my customers? Um, Does it create more good than harm? Any data science outcome should if it's going to be implemented. Um, Who might be harmed? How might they be harmed? Um, 
how might our modelling be used in a way that's not intended? And often there's no, like, right or wrong answer and it's I think it's asking these questions and interrogating our models outputs in these ways that at least raises the issues and then you talk about okay well if if there are these issues what do we do about them Mm. and also I'm sorry that's okay I was going to say and and these are things that companies are already talking about but I see a focus on this area even more so going forward yeah so so it's moving away from can we do it to should we do it exactly yep yeah and um and also if you're a um, company that's selling say a software as a service um what could someone potentially do with this product and is that something you want to be done with this product exactly and i think as an example in the past organisations were probably aware that there's anti-discrimination laws, which mean that you can't accept in exceptional circumstances discriminate based on protected attributes like gender or race or political background. There's a whole lot of different ones. So companies would say, okay, well, let's make sure that we're not using gender to calculate someone's insurance Mm -hmm. price, for example. Um, but I think companies are now becoming more aware of some of the indirect discrimination that can occur. So, for example, maybe in your model, you make sure that you don't have features like gender or race or political mm. association used as a, a direct feature in the model. But maybe your model is looking at the school that someone went to and all of a sudden there's this bias that's introduced because the model is recognising that schools in a particular geographical area actually attract a higher insurance price or you know whatever it is that you're trying to calculate and so maybe what's really happening is your model is picking up geographical factors that effectively um, represent race if there's a big concentration of different races in different geographical areas so it's a bit of a minefield in a way because I've heard someone else say and I, I tend to agree that every data set that you use is biased. It, mm. it, it represents historical behaviours and those historical behaviours were biased. So I guess the first step is just trying to understand what some of those biases are and then working out, okay, well, yeah, how do we make sure that we're not perpetuating those biases into the future if we shouldn't be? And uh, that's actually a very good advertisement because I've got um, Dr Fei Huang Um, coming on a future episode to discuss how to avoid um, bias and discrimination. Fantastic. Um, And she's done a lot more thinking in that area than I have. So, yeah, she'd be fascinating to talk to. And finally, uh, what final advice would you give to organisations looking to maximise the value of their data? Uh, I guess the advice would be the same as the advice that I give to an individual who just wants to start their learning journey in this area, just get started somewhere so you know if you're wanting to start down the path of data science pick something pick something small pick staff who are keen and just get started I don't think it really matters how you start and just encourage those staff members to experiment so as we said experiment small but just have a go and don't worry if you fail so I guess if you can set them up so that failing is okay and you can learn from those failures rather than sort of rule data science out based on failures, then that's an excellent way to start. Okay. So um, this has been great. 
Uh, for listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact with you, Amanda, uh, what can they do? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so that's probably the easiest way. I think you can message me through LinkedIn if you'd like to. I'm always interested in talking to new people, so feel free to reach out. Um, and information about the Actuaries Institute's education program is available on our website. So I'll give you the link to that, Genevieve. We can put that into the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention as well is we talked a little bit about the Institute offering data science related topics um, to non-actuaries and there is a data analytics seminar coming up at the end of November. So I'll give you links to that as well and listeners, whether they're from an actuarial or non-actuarial background might be interested in attending that. Okay. And if you're listening to this after November of 2022, um, the Institute regularly holds data analytics seminars. So um, if you contact the Institute, I'm sure they'll let you know of any future events that might be occurring. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. So um, thanks for joining me today, Amanda. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed our discussion. Yeah, this was fun. (laughs) And for those in the audience, uh, thank you for listening. I'm Dr Genevieve Hayes, and I hope you join me again next time for Value Driven Data Science. Thank you.